This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Listen to all episodes of Tomb and Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there. Jane has a very cocky smile on her face. I wonder why. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, uh, Candace, have you ever seen the Saturday Night Live skit with Michael Myers where he plays uh, Linda Richmond in Coffee Talk? Yeah. It's one of my favorites. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's so apropos for a topic that we're going to discuss today, the Underground Railroad. Neither underground nor, nor railroad. railroad. <laughs> discuss, discuss. <laughs> That's right. It's, it, and he's, uh, he would be right if he said that because uh, um, the Underground Railroad is a pretty fascinating uh, network. It's a secret network that existed in the 19th century to, in America to help uh, African-American slaves escape from slavery. And so much about the Underground Railroad remains a secret because the origins are very murky and there were no yeah. written records about it at the time to protect the secrecy of the network. So things that we know come from accounts of people who made it through the Underground Railroad or Mm -hmm. people who served it. And I actually learned some pretty interesting things about the Underground Railroad when I was doing some research on it. And I guess the first one is that it was really, really expensive. And it makes sense, but I'd never really thought about it before. But we're talking about fugitive slaves who would have to be clothed and fed and hidden and provided with transportation, sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks on end. That's right. And because it was so dangerous, all these precautions were very necessary. And again, because of the danger, a lot of people, um, abolitionists, philanthropists, they were called stockholders. They would raise money to contribute to the people who ran the Underground Railroad so that they could pay bribes to people who might squeal. And the reason that squealing was such a big deal was because of something called the Fugitive Slave Acts. That's right. And uh, to give you some context... If you go back to the Constitution, as we all know, much of the Constitution was a compromise when it came to, when it came to slavery because the North and the South disagreed about it. Um, but in order to make a union, they had to they had to compromise, and so they had this clause where they said fugitives of labor who escaped into um, a, a different state uh, had to be returned. 
And although the Constitution didn't really say how to enforce this, it did say that it needed to happen. And so uh, a few years later, they had the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, which basically made it a federal crime to assist escaped slaves. Uh, and it was still relatively murky even after this act because it left it up to the local courts to decide how to enforce it. And so there were basically loopholes that both abolitionists and uh, pro-slavery um authorities took advantage of. And so in 1850, it was reinforced. All these revisions set into place high fines for people who aided and abetted fugitive slaves. And also, these people could receive prison time. They could even be executed. And any black person living in the North could actually be sought after and said to be a slave, even if that were untrue, That's and right. made to the come bl- back to the South. Yeah, it made it very easy for, for slave hunters, basically bounty hunters, to to lure um, uh, free black children, for instance, and to bring them into slavery. And it's a horrific uh, situation that happened. It was actually, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was part of a, another compromise, uh, if you've ever heard of the Compromise of 1850. And in return for this, uh, this given uh, conceding to the South, they let California in as a free state. Um, but what's interesting about this law, I think, is that it basically legislated a bribe where magistrates were given fees of five dollars if they um, if they stopped a slave hunter from bringing back a slave. But the fee got raised to ten dollars if they allowed the slave hunter to take the slave away. And so ultimately, the North responded to the Fugitive Slave Act and the revisions by saying that slavery was being pushed upon them, even though it was something that they did not condone in the mm-hmm. North. It was an institution that the majority of the North frowned upon, but because people who wanted to speak out against slavery had essentially been muzzled, mm-hmm. they felt like it was time to do something. That's right. So uh, even though it was much more dangerous after the, the Act of 1850, it also provoked the anti-slavery movement. Exactly. And if you look at the time before 1850, um, for example, the early 1800s, we see that there are sort of a, a network of kind strangers mm-hmm. who would help fugitive slaves get to the North. There are about 14 states in the North that were safe for fugitive slaves or to Canada, which was an even more popular choice because they couldn't be touched by the Fugitive Slave Acts there. And then by the 1820s, there was a little bit more organization with anti-slavery groups helping to shuttle along the fugitive slaves. And by 1840, there was almost a full-on underground network there to help. And that was the Underground Railroad. That's right. And it was largely unprecedented. I mean, it was based, it was completely unprecedented because obviously the slaves have existed throughout history. And there have been, um, like even ancient Rome, they had problems with runaway, runaway, uh, slaves. But never before had there been such a sophisticated network for helping them escape. And that's what makes the Underground Railroad so special. And what's wild is that it really spread by word of mouth. Mm-hmm. We said before it had to be secretive, you know, by its, by its sole existence. That was the only way it could survive. And we should go over the the terms or the terminology for the Underground Railroad, and I think that that will help you understand why, even though it was neither underground nor railroad, it was called the Underground Railroad. So uh, the routes of escape that the fugitive slaves would follow were called lines, like a railroad line. And then the different pit stops or safe places or, you know, hideouts that they would visit were called stations. The people who volunteered and helped the slaves along were called conductors. And the fugitives themselves were called packages or freight. And historical records are unclear about how many slaves actually made it through the Underground Railroad. There's 
some very low estimates that put that number at around 2,000. Some are more generous, saying about 40,000. Others say a couple hundred thousand. But no matter what, um, we know for sure that Ohio is one of the most active states and that the most success stories come from the border states like Maryland, Kentucky, and Virginia, and that if you were in the Deep South, you neither had a chance at all of getting up to the north, or if you did, you were incredibly lucky, or you escaped to Spanish-controlled territories like Florida or Mexico. That's right. And if you were lucky and you made it to one of the northern states, uh, often they would have vigilance committees there that would basically help you start a new life. They would get you uh, shelter, work, and protect you from slave hunters. So there was hope. And it was obviously a risk worth undertaking, especially when the Underground Railroad was more established. At the beginning, you primarily saw single men going through on their own. And then as more confidence was instilled in the Underground Railroad, uh, more passengers would come through and even sometimes families. And that was what was so tricky about the Underground Railroad was that someone would be commissioned by either a newly freed slave or an abolitionist. And this commissioned field agent would go down to different plantations to make contact with a slave, and he might pose as a doctor or a census taker, and it would take a while to get the slave's trust. That's right. It was difficult because obviously slaves were skeptical of people helping them, like maybe they were just luring them away to get, you know, a, a bounty on them. Uh, so they often would only trust uh, other African Americans, or um, they eventually started trusting Quakers. Um, as well because they were more recognizable mm-hmm. and they were known for being anti-slavery. Right. So once the field agent had gained the slave's trust, he would help convey him to a conductor and the conductor would help the slave on the first leg of the journey to the very first station in, in the safe house. And there, a station master would feed and clothe the slave and prepare the slave for the next leg of his journey. And oftentimes, the station masters would equip slaves with disguises. It was not uncommon at all for a male slave to be disguised as a female. I think you even see an instance mm-hmm. of this in Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's been a while since I've read it, but I'm pretty sure there is an instance of that occurring. And um, there's one famous case of a black slave woman being disguised as a white woman and even being given a white baby to use as a very convincing prop. That's right. And there are places you can go to today to where these stations were and find hidden passageways and, and hidden hiding places for these slaves to stay. Even in Pennsylvania, as we mentioned, uh, Pennsylvania was one state that wanted to, much of it wanted to help uh, slaves escape. And so I think there was uh, one station near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which you can go and visit. It's now a restaurant and you can go see a hiding place where the bookshelf moves. And It's, it's wild, the yeah. lengths that the abolitionists and these philanthropists went to to help fugitive slaves. And even though there were that many people helping, it was still a very, very dangerous journey. And uh, they would travel at night under the cover of darkness following the North Star. Mm-hmm. And during the daytime, the slaves would hide in caves and underbrush and thickets and just hope and pray that no one stumbled upon them. That's right. And this was often difficult because, uh, I don't know if you mentioned this, Candace, but the lines, as you mentioned, uh, were often very zigzagged. Uh, in order to throw off uh, slave hunters. And these often worked against the slaves sometimes if they if they were not able to get a guide. And so they, they would often get lost and it would take them years to get out of this railroad. And so we see that it was not impossible, but very, very dangerous to do the trip mm-hmm. on your own. And if they were lucky enough to have a guide, like Jane mentioned, 
you know, success was much more guaranteed. And one of the most famous guides was Harriet Tubman. That's right. And she herself had been a slave and had escaped. She was in uh, a slave in Maryland and she had escaped to Pennsylvania. And uh, when she returned, she had married earlier a free uh, black. And when she returned, she noticed or she found out that her um, free husband had married again and wasn't willing to go with her. And Tubman took members of her family back to Pennsylvania. And one historian, Fergus M. Bordowicz, suggests that it was this experience where her husband, you know, remarried and didn't want to come with her that really hardened her and it really made her a tough lady, to say the least. She was tough, like Jane said, and I think that there's that age-old scenario where people ask if, if you were hiding and there were enemies approaching and there was a baby in your group and it cried out, would, would you suffocate it? And, you know, it's sort of a mor- morality mm-hmm. debate. And sure. the answer is hard to say, but a lot of people would argue, yes, to spare the lives of the group, you would let one person go. And I think Tubman really lived by this notion, too. And she would often threaten to kill slaves if one of them was getting scared or making too much noise. Yeah. You know, it was, it was for the good of the group. And it worked because she made about 13 trips on the Underground Railroad, taking about 70 slaves to either New York and Canada. It must have taken some some really hard nerves to do what she did, so it's yeah. good for her. Um, also, you mentioned Harriet Beecher Stowe earlier, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's interesting because... She is often criticized as like never having really been in the South and having experienced slavery, but she got her knowledge about slavery through her word of mouth contact with Underground Railroad and the members of it. And so whether or not Stowe witnessed firsthand the the perils of the Underground Railroad or saw firsthand the atrocities of slavery, I think is a moot point because the novel really moved people. And it's a very emotional read. It's a very long novel, but it will make you cry, especially the character of Uncle Tom. I was was in tears when I finished. but And it made a huge impact at the time. So it was just sort of like the ripples that the Underground Railroad had were very vast. Yeah, it made a huge emotional appeal. And... Um, I think one of the saddest stories to come out of the Underground Railroad is is one that involves Levi Coffin, who was, um, I believe he was a Quaker, and he wrote a treatise about his ex- experience with the Underground Railroad. And um, he mentioned that there was one party of 28 that came through from Kentucky, and there was a baby in the group. And they, they got to a certain place, and they had to stop, and they were hiding in the thicket, and Levi Coffin arranged for uh, abolitionists in the community to bring them clothes and shoes because it was incredibly cold, um, hot coffee and food. And everyone was wondering, how are we going to convey this huge group of people through to the next station? And mm-hmm. Coffin came up with the idea that they should all act like they're in a funeral procession and just walk very solemnly and slowly along the road and no one would question them. And it it worked. But when they arrived at the next safe house, they realized it wasn't just a pretend funeral procession. The baby had actually died from malnutrition in the cold. So wow. it was an actual real funeral procession. I've never heard that story. It's, it's very interesting. It's very sad. It and, is very sad. Yeah. And I think that there are so many countless more like that and so many legends about the Underground Railroad that mm-hmm. we may never know are true. We, we hear stories about... Um, quilt patterns being secret codes to slaves, whether or not a house was safe or there was a bounty hunter on the lookout. And there are so many stories like this about the Underground Railroad. So we would urge you guys to check out the article on the Underground Railroad, as well as information on historical figures like Harriet Tubman on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. 
I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class.